Okay, so take a seat. Hello, beautiful. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Hi, Anthony. How much does my discount double-check save me? About 150 Done. I don't have State Farm, but insurance, find me money. I got you a dollar. Oh, you almost had it. You've got to be quicker than that. Having insurance isn't the same as having State Farm. They're to help you with unexpected savings. That's getting to a better state. It's a wonderful commercial. But here's the point. Here's the point. Often when we read the account of Jesus in the Bible, it feels like Jesus is just going, anything you can do, I can do better. Watch, I'm Jesus. And he can, right? He's, he's God, right? But sometimes it just feels like He's, he's just kind of being antagonistic, like, oh, oh, you got to oh, be faster than that, right? It just feels like he's doing that to us. But what we're going to see today in, in Luke is that Jesus isn't that way at all. Jesus didn't come and live his life on this earth to antagonize us. He did it to empathize with us. So let's turn to Luke chapter 3, and I'll show you what I mean. We're in Luke chapter 3, starting in verse 21. And as you're turning there, we're, we're using the CSB now, the Christian Standard Bible. And we have some uh, journals, I believe, still left if you want one. Um, it's got the text on one side and a place to journal on the right. Uh, if you want to grab one of those for free on your way out today. Um, but Luke chapter 3, verse 21. When all the people were baptized... Jesus was also baptized. Now let's stop right there. Just go with that first sentence. Jesus was baptized. Jesus was baptized like you and I can get baptized. Why would Jesus get baptized? I mean, he certainly didn't have any sin to repent of. He was sinless. So why did he do it? A couple reasons. I think first to set an example for mankind, to set an example for us. He's saying this is what you do when you commit your life to God. You get baptized. You repent, you turn from your sin, and then you get baptized. It's kind of like if you, if you go to page one of your Bible, if you, look at, if you look at page one, you see that God, when he creates everything, he creates it all in six days, and on the seventh day he does what? He rests. Did God rest because he needed to take a nap because he was so tired? No way. He didn't need a nap. God, God doesn't get tired, right? Why did he rest, though? He rested as an example for us. And he's doing the same thing with being baptized. He's, he's saying, this is what you do when you commit your life to God. Jesus didn't need to get baptized. He's setting an example for us. I think the second reason he was baptized is to identify with us, with mankind in their sin. Theologian Leon Morris says at the outset of his ministry, he publicly identified himself with the sinners that he came to save. He's foreshadowing the cross. He's foreshadowing the cross where he would take all of sin on himself. He's foreshadowing that the sinless Jesus would become sin for us. That he who, that he who had no sin became sin for us. Jesus went to the cross, took all of sin on himself. So he's getting baptized to foreshadow that he would identify with us by taking our sin on himself. Now, baptism is not something that saves you. Hear me well. 
But it's how Jesus chose to start his earthly ministry. And if that's how Jesus did, even though he didn't have to, don't you think that would be a great way for us to start as well? Baptism is, is an incredibly powerful experience. Baptism is an outward symbol of a changed heart. I, I love it when we, when we fill the tub and we do baptisms here because it's always so encouraging, not just to the person who's being baptized, but to everyone here. It's so fun and motivating and encouraging because we're like, wow, the, Jesus took this person and, and they were in darkness, and they were in their sin, and they changed their life. And we're getting to see in this physical symbol, in this, this picture, how their heart was cleansed from their sin and how they were given new life because Jesus rose from the dead. So I would, I would love to fill this tub up next week and baptize some people. If you are following Jesus and you haven't been baptized, why not? Jesus did. He's like, I'm all in. I'm starting my earthly ministry. I'm being baptized. And he does it as an example for us. So Jesus lived his life. Again, not to antagonize us, but to empathize with us. He was baptized like you and me. Jesus, next we're going to see Jesus was dependent much like you and me. Let's go to the next sentence. As he, verse 21, 321. As he was praying... Heaven opened, and the Holy Spirit descended on him in a physical appearance like a dove, and a voice came from heaven. You are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. Jesus is dependent here, and it's shown right away before he even does anything. Sorry, before anything happens with the baptism, he's praying. Prayer is an act of humble submission, dependence, desperation. And Jesus is doing this. Jesus was dependent on the Holy Spirit as well for empowerment. Here we get, the, we get a glimpse of the oneness and interdependence of the Trinity on full display. The Spirit gives Jesus power. Jesus depends on the Holy Spirit's enablement. We also see Jesus being dependent on the approval of his dad, on God the Father. The, the Father here endorses Jesus as God, as his son, with his love and affection and stamp of approval. And Jesus submits to his Father. He depends on his Father for this approval and for this guidance. This is, this is really cool. Don't, don't miss the picture here that we're given. All three members of the Trinity were observed by at least one of the five senses to the people standing there. Okay, D don't miss this. You, if you were here watching this, you got to see and hear Jesus. You got to see the Holy Spirit coming down like a dove, like a dove, not, not exactly like a dove. Luke just didn't know how else to describe it. And then you got to hear God the Father speak. How incredible. I mean, I, people were probably just drawn to their knees and worship or just stunned. I, I don't know, but, or maybe they didn't realize the gravity of what was going on. Hopefully they did. But it's an incredible scene. But Jesus here is setting an example for us to live dependently on the Father, on the Son, on the Holy Spirit. But also, he's, he's living dependently in a very different way than we live dependently. In fact, maybe you wouldn't even call this dependence that Jesus is showing. He's just living 
life. So Jesus is the Holy Spirit. Jesus is God the Father. So he's, this is just life for him. Three in one, right? He is the, so he's not living dependently. He's just living. But to us, it looks like dependence. And I'm just going to stop right there with, with describing the Trinity. That's maybe a different sermon. And on top of that, it's beyond our understanding. But the point here is that we also receive empowerment by the Holy Spirit. And we also need the approval of our Heavenly Father. We need to live dependently in prayer. We need to say things like, Holy Spirit, I know that you're here. Holy Spirit, I know you're in me. Fill me, empower me. We need to say things like this, Father, I know that in spite of me and my sin, you approve of me. Help me believe the words that you said to Jesus. And I pray that you would, you would pray this this week and, and today. Jesus, help me believe the words that you said here. That you are my dearly loved son. You are my dearly loved daughter. And with you, I am well pleased. And you may hear those words today and you go, yeah, but you don't know what I did. And I would just say, you, you don't know what he did then. You know, he, 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 Jesus approves of you. God the Father approves of you in spite of you, in spite of me. He goes, with you, I'm well pleased because when I look at you, if you are covered by the blood of Jesus, he just sees his son. He goes, you are royalty. With you, I'm well pleased. Jesus lived his life not to antagonize us, but to empathize with us. Jesus was dependent like you and me. Next, we see that Jesus had the same father as you and me. Now, let's, let's look at verse 23 and hang in here with these names, okay? Here we go, and give me grace. As he began his ministry, Jesus was about 30 years old and was thought to be the son of Joseph, son of Heli, son of Mathet, son of Levi, son of Melchi, son of Jani, son of Joseph, son of Mattathias, son of Amos, son of Nahum, Son of Esli, son of Nagai, son of Moth, son of Mattathias, son of Semyon, son of Josic, son of Jodah, son of Jonan, son of Resa, son of Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, son of Neri, son of Melchi, son of Adi, son of Kosam, son of Elmadam, son of Ur, son of Joshua, son of Eliezer, son of Jorim, son of Mathet, son of Levi, son of Simeon, son of Judah, son of Joseph, son of Jonam, son of Eliakim, son of Malia. Son of Mena, son of Mattatha, son of Nathan, son of David, you might know him, son of Jesse, son of Obed, son of Boaz, okay, the one who redeemed Ruth and her line, son of Salmon, son of Nashan, son of Aminadab, son of Ram, son of Hezron, son of Perez, son of Judah, son of Jacob, son of Isaac, son of Abraham, there's our guy, son of Terah, son of Nahor, son of Serug, son of Ru. Son of Peleg, son of Eber, son of Shelah, son of Canaan, son of Arphaxad, that is a cool one, son of Shem, son of Noah, there's Noah, son of Lamech, son of Methuselah, oldest person to live, son of Enoch, son of Jared, son of Mahalal, son of Canaan, son of Enos, son of Seth, son of Adam, son of God. Yes, praise the Lord if we made it through. Okay, so... Let me make some sense of all of this for us. Why is all of this in here? 
showing us that Jesus had the same father as you and me. Now, in this list, there's some messed up fathers. There's some messed up dudes, okay? And, and a lot of these guys, we just don't know much about, but I guarantee there were some terrible ones in here, okay? And the same is true about us, right? We don't know all of the ancestors in our family line, like Greg, who did his Ancestry.com and probably could tell us all of their, them by name. Um, but we, you know, we may know some of them, but we don't, we don't know all of them. Even Greg doesn't know all of them all the way back. But I guarantee we, we, we have some not-so-great ones. Jesus also had some not-so-great ones in his ancestry. Jesus had some decent fathers. I'm positive there were some decent dudes in here, right? Not perfect, but decent. Same for us. If, we, if you traced your lineage, we got some decent ancestors. And Jesus had some important fathers, and I pointed them out a bit as I was reading here. Noah, right? Abraham, Boaz, David. Incredible guys, very important in the scheme of, of, of redemptive history. But even those guys, if you read their accounts, had some failures and had some flaws. Now, you've heard of the whole seven degrees of Kevin Bacon, right? We're all like seven people removed from being related to Kevin Bacon. I don't think that's actually true. But it, it may be seven to ten degrees from Kevin Bacon. But the, what I'm trying to say is we all have someone important in our family line. If you go back far enough. You're like, me, I, I, don't, I don't think I do. No, I bet you do. You just got to go back far enough, all right? But Jesus had Adam as his father. Notice that Adam, the first human who sinned and introduced sin into this world, is in Jesus' family line. Now, it's interesting in Luke because in Matthew, he also gives the genealogy of Jesus, but he only goes back to Abraham. And that's because Matthew is trying to show us the, the Jewish history, but Luke is trying to tell us, hey, Jesus came for everybody, Gentiles and Jews alike. Jesus shared the same bloodline as not just Israel, everybody. And the same is true for us. Every one of us can be traced back to Adam. Through this one man, sin came into the world. That's our common family tie that we all have with every other human being. Adam, who was a sinner. But Jesus, ultimately, it doesn't end there, ultimately had God as his father, son of God, it ends with. While Jesus was fully man with Adam as his earthly dad all the way back, that wasn't the final word for him. Jesus was fully God and is fully God and has the Father as his real dad. And while we are not God, not anywhere close, we're born with Adam as our dad. But if we believe in Christ, we are adopted into God's family and he's our new perfect dad, like Christ. Luke is trying to show us that regardless of our family line, of our past, the good, the bad, the ugly in our past, and our ancestors' past, every single one of us is invited to share the same dad as Jesus. What a privilege. God the Father as our dad. Now, growing up, grew up in a small town, Comanche, Iowa, and... Uh, 
My dad went to the same school as I did, okay? So we had a lot of the same teachers, and I hated it because a lot of teachers would call me Daryl's boy. That's my dad, okay? And my dad's a good guy, not to knock him or anything. But, you know, when you're growing up, you don't really like to be referred to as, as whoever's son or whoever's nephew or whoever's granddaughter or whatever, right? You, you want to be your own person. So I just hated it, and it had this connotation. My dad was rather quiet in school and the good kid, right? So every time I would do something even remotely out of line, you're Daryl's boy, you should act different than that, right? And I hated it. Okay, I remember one time uh, I was in junior high track and my coach, of course, in a small town, my coach was co-worker with my dad. So um, he pulls me into his office and he's like, Matt, I've heard you making fun of some other kids in the locker room. And I was, he was right. I shouldn't have done that. But I expect more of you. You're Daryl's son. Okay. You know, for, for all of us, I, I bet we don't really like that either, but there's other times probably in, in our lives, there has in my life and maybe in yours as well, where we were expected to fail or we were expected to amount to nothing because we were in so-and-so's son or so-and-so's daughter or so-and-so's nephew. But the sin of our first father, Adam, doesn't have to define us anymore. The sin and even the success of your immediate fathers or mothers or aunts, uncles, grandmothers, grandfathers doesn't define you. The sin and success even of you doesn't define you ultimately. It's not by works. The love of the father is where I find my identity now. And the love of the Father is where you can find your identity now as well. You're not, you're not Connie's daughter or Daryl's son. You're son of God, daughter of God. And he loves you no matter what. He loves you the same no matter what. That is what it means. Feel this, this past freeing, sin crushing, open, welcome invitation. We see it in, in this verse. First John 3, 1 says, See what great love the Father has given us, that we should be called God's children. And so we are. And so we are. That's who you are. You're not first and foremost so-and-so's son or so-and-so's daughter. You are the son of God. You are a daughter of God. Jesus lived his life not to antagonize us, but to empathize with us. Jesus had the same father. That's you and me. Next, we see that Jesus was tempted by the devil like you and I are. Let's go to chapter 4 now, 4 verse 1. Then Jesus left the Jordan full of the Holy Spirit and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days to be tempted by the devil. He ate nothing during those days. And when they were over, he was hungry. No way, Luke. He was hungry after that? Sorry, I, whenever I read that, it just, it just makes me go, duh. But um, anyway, Jesus was tempted by the devil like you and me. Okay, why would the Holy Spirit, God himself, intentionally lead Jesus to be tempted by the devil? That's what it says happens here. Why would God want anyone 
specifically his, his son, to be tempted by the devil. Here's why. Jesus does this again. God the Father and the Holy Spirit put him through this as an example for us. Why? Because we are tempted by the devil. Jesus is tempted by the devil so we can learn from his response and take comfort and courage in the fact that he also was tempted like we are. Note here that Jesus was full of the Holy Spirit, it says. God prepared Jesus to be tempted by the devil, and he does the same for us. He prepares us. He's given us the Holy Spirit's empowerment to defeat the devil's temptations. The question for us is, are we listening to the Holy Spirit, or are we just ignoring him? Now, I want to contrast here Jesus' environment that he was tempted in to the environment that Adam was tempted by the devil in Genesis. Okay, Jesus, it says here, he was fasting and he was hungry. Adam, on the other hand, was feasting and full in the Garden of Eden. Jesus was in a desert and out in the wilderness with nothing, all alone. Adam was in paradise with everything he could want with his wife Eve. Who was better set up to defeat the temptation of the devil circumstantially? Anybody? Adam was. Absolutely he was. Way better circumstances. Yet, Jesus, in the worst situation possible, defeats the devil's temptations and lies. While Adam, in the best situation possible, loses. What an example Jesus is setting for us. Jesus is saying, I understand the temptation you're facing completely. I not only faced a temptation like you're facing right now, I faced it while starving, alone, and vulnerable. Certainly, as we're going to see soon in this passage, Jesus will masterfully defeat this temptation. But for now, I just want you to feel the humble, empathetic, understanding heart of Jesus Christ. If you think that Jesus couldn't possibly understand the temptation that you're facing, remember this extreme temptation here and be comforted. Jesus isn't going, be quiet about your temptation. Mine was so much better than yours. So much greater, so much harder. Quite the opposite. He's saying, I see that and I've been there too. Jesus lived his life not to antagonize, not to antagonize us, but to empathize with us. Jesus was tempted by the devil like you and me. Next, we see that Jesus always resisted the devil unlike you and me. Now we're going to see the Godhood of Jesus. Starting in 4 verse 3. The devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, tell this stone to become bread. But Jesus answered him, It is written, Man must not live on bread alone. So he took him up and showed him the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. The devil said to him, I will give you their splendor and all this authority because it has been given over to me and I can give it to anyone I want. If you then will worship me, all will be yours. And Jesus answered him, it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. So he took him to Jerusalem and had him stand on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down from here. For it is written, he will give his angels orders concerning you to protect you and they will support you with their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. 
And Jesus answered him, It is said, Do not test the Lord your God. After the devil had finished every temptation, he departed from him for a time. Jesus always resisted, unlike you and me. He resisted the devil every time, which shows his, his godhood here. Now, we have to understand the circumstances here. Jesus, again, it's, it's terrible circumstances, and the devil leads him out. You and I in these circumstances, out in the desert, starving, alone, maybe we could resist one of those. At best, too, but there's no way. Don't kid yourself. There's no way you, there's no way I, there's no way anybody could have gone out there and resisted all three of those temptations from the devil. Jesus, in a supernatural way, has the ability to resist. Yet, the way that Jesus resisted clearly was for our benefit. He battled and defeated the devil's temptations not with a tool that was only available to him. Think of it. He could have done like in cartoons where they just snap their fingers and uh, the other guy like in Looney Tunes just has a zipper over their mouth, right? Or Bugs Bunny just goes up and zips their mouth shut with a zipper that just appears. Jesus could have done something like that. Maybe that in particular, that would have been kind of cool. He could have given the devil the look, right? If you're married, you know what I'm talking about. The look, like, and then, and then you stop. Oh, oh, I better be quiet. You know, I better, I better stop, right? You know the look. He could have done that. He could have said the word. And I believe there, there was an angel sniper there during Jesus' whole life, just waiting behind a rock, ready to just shoot whenever, right? And Jesus could have been just pointed and boom, devil's taken out, right? But he didn't. Jesus also could have given some new words of God to defeat the devil. He's God after all, so he speaks and it's God's word, but yet he doesn't even do that. Instead, he resisted the devil with a tool that you and I can use just as easily. The word of God. Every single temptation Jesus encounters, he counters with truth from scripture. Here's the thing, reading God's word and having it ready to battle with is not just a good thing. It's an essential weapon to defeat the lies of the great enemy of our souls. When you pick up the Bible, you're not just being a good little Christian who read the Bible today. No, you're getting ready for battle. You're putting bullets in your gun. It's war. This world is not our home. He's given us his word to defeat the lies of the enemy, and he's great at them, isn't he? This week, I've been reading through the Psalms, and I, I was reading Psalm 16, 8, and it says, because he, God, is at my right hand, I will not be shaken. God was putting bullets in my gun to defeat the lies of the devil. That day, I heard from the devil, you're alone. No one cares about you, Matt. You know what I did? Opened back up to Psalm 16 and said, no. God, you are right here with me and I will not be shaken. But it's not always that simple. It's not always that easy to defeat 
the lies of the devil, is it? Jesus also experienced that. Look at the third one. He, he gets it. Okay, He understands. Verses 9 through 11, the devil uses scripture to tempt him. Talk about relentless. He now started using his own tactics against him. But Jesus, without hesitation, shoots it down once again with Scripture. The devil loves to cherry-pick lines out of Scripture and take them out of context. Help us forget the rest of Scripture. One that he does this often to people and to myself is Romans 6.23. The wages of sin is death. Hey, Matt, guess what? You deserve death. That sin you just created? Yeah, you deserve to die. You deserve hell. You don't deserve to be with Jesus. He probably doesn't even love you right now. Because the wages of sin is death, Matt. But that's an incomplete sentence. Romans 6.23 says the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Devil just wants us to hang out there. But guess what? There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The gift of God is eternal life. Yes, my sin earns me death. Yes, I need to take sin seriously because it hurts the heart of God and earned me death. But that's not the end of the story. The gift of God is his his grace that he shows to me on the cross. The devil loves to shove our nose in that first line, doesn't he? Wages of sin is death. You know, God put another bullet in my gun when I read Psalm 16, 8 this week, and it says, because he's at my right hand, I will not be shaken. God was putting bullets in my gun to defeat the devil's twisted lies. See, a couple days later, I had committed to spending some time with some people to help them grow, and it it was mutual to help me grow, be more like Jesus as well. And then someone asked me if I could go have lunch with them during the same time. And I politely declined and said, unfortunately, not right now, but I would love to meet up with you soon. Let's, let's set something up for tomorrow or the next day or next week. And they didn't like my response at all. They were not happy. The devil tried to use the scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, and go, Matt, you know what? That's the second commandment. That's the second greatest commandment. Love your neighbor as yourself. You're not loving that person like yourself right now. He said, you you ruined that person's life because you didn't abandon your prior commitments to meet their demands. You ruined their life, Matt. Lies. Jesus also said, let your yes be yes and your no be no. So I said, no, I'm not going to let this shake me. I will not be shaken, Psalm 16, 8. My yes is yes. I am helping to love this neighbor and already committed to. Now, if it's a crisis and God really calls me to, that's a different thing, but that's not what was happening here. And I wasn't shaken. I didn't let it ruin my day. I didn't let those thoughts fester. that I ruined this person's life. All those lies from the devil. See, Jesus resisted the devil. And we can just as easily today with God's word. Now why? 
As we look back at this passage, why was Jesus baptized? Why was he dependent? Why does he have the same lineage, the same father, and why was he tempted by the devil? Not for his sake. He didn't need any of that. The king of kings and lord of lords did not deserve to be drug out in the desert and tempted by the devil. He deserved quite the opposite. It wasn't for his sake. It was for our sake. He gets us. He understands us. Look at Hebrews 4.15 on the screen with me. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. No, but one who has been tempted in every way as we are. He's been tempted in every way to sympathize with us. He gets our weaknesses. He gets the temptations you're going through. He gets the fears, the anxiety, the worry. He, he lived that stuff. He's not a God far off and disconnected. But the next part, the next slide. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in every way as we are yet yet without sin. Yet without sin, his humanity gives us comfort and reassurance in our time of need, while his godhood gives us help and strength in time of need. Therefore, verse 16, let us approach the throne of grace with boldness so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. See, Jesus didn't go through all of this stuff and go, ha ha, I was without sin and you aren't. No. He does it so that we can go to him boldly and find grace and mercy in our time of need. Go, I get it. I understand. I know. So if I could have my daughter Joy come up here. All right, you can, you can face the people here. All right. So here's what God's not doing to us. He's not going, good try. Oh, try to get it. Oh. Oh, better not luck next year. Well, you know what's funny? Not to ruin the illustration or anything, but... Um, I had to borrow this dollar from Joy today <laughs> for the illustration. <laughs> But we digress, we digress. Let's get back to it. Um, <laughs> quite the opposite. I think it'll turn in a couple of years where she's coming to me for my... Anyway, um, oh, this is what God's not like with us. Jesus isn't living his life in the Gospels to go, hey, you know what? You think you can, you think you can uh, deny the temptation of the devil? Nope, too slow. Too slow, you can't do it. I did it way better than you. You know what Jesus is actually doing in the Gospels? He's actually handing us the dollar, putting his arm around our shoulder and going, I am for you and I am not against you. I came to empathize with you. I am your father and I love you. Let's walk through this together. Let's pray. Father, I thank you so much that you are for us and not against us.
I thank you that you came and lived your life and were baptized and dependent on God and tempted by the devil and on and on and on. Not to rub it in our face, but to rather go, I get it and I'm with you. I understand completely. So I pray, Father, that we would remember this image. Just as I stand here with my arm around my daughter, I pray that we would have this image in our head this week, that you have your arm around us. and You are for us, not against us. And that as we continue to read Luke, as we continue to encounter you in the scriptures, Jesus, we would see you for who you are, Jesus. Not as someone who's, who's trying to rub in our face that you're so much better than us, but rather going, I get it. I will never leave you or forsake you. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.